I remember feeling a little distracted and somewhat irritated as I tried to speak over the snores. It was at one of the churches I previously served at, and there was this new family that had started attending. Um, They were a, a nice couple, friendly people, as I was getting to know them, but almost without fail, about 10 minutes into every sermon, the husband would fall asleep. And the, our sanctuary that at this church was much smaller than this one, and, and he was a very loud snorer. He would put his head back like this, and it would just fill the sanctuary. Now, I understand the occasional snoozer can happen in a sermon. It comes with the territory. I get it. I know that, that you have long work hours and, and school, you know, studying. I, I get it that sometimes you might come in here on a Sabbath morning and be tired and, and may fall asleep. I also understand that I don't have the strongest, you know, most powerful preaching voice. It's kind of mellow, and, and people have told me, sometimes you lull me to sleep <laughs> when, you, when you talk, and I, I get it. And although I believe the Holy Spirit always blesses a message despite, you know, shortcomings that I have or any other preacher would have, I know that some sermons have better stories and more captivating illustrations than others. Um, there's not too many today, just to, just to warn you, I couldn't find too many, and I, and I get it. Maybe it's not as exciting or attention-grabbing, and you may doze off. And hey, Sabbath is a day of rest, so... If I provide you with the occasional snooze, then I'm at peace with that, helping you to enjoy Sabbath. But, oh, we got some amens for that. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to be watching. Can we raise the lights up a little bit? I'm just joking. But for this gentleman, it was, (laughs) thank you. That's much better, actually. But for this particular gentleman, it was not the occasional snooze, which I can understand. Every week, without fail, he would sleep. And as time went on, I began to get more irritated. I found myself thinking, even in the middle of preaching, who does this guy think he is? Why does he even stay for the sermon? Just go home. I mean, he's distracting not only me, but everybody else that's here. And as this kept going on longer and longer, week after week, I found my judgments of him to be even harsher. I would think, I'm ashamed to admit it, I bet he doesn't even care about church or about spiritual things or his relationship with God. I bet the only reason he's here is because his wife dragged him to be here each week. Well, one day I got a call from the wife asking if I could come visit them in their home and pray for them. So I went to their house, they invited me in, and we sat down and they proceeded to tell me, the wife proceeded to tell me about this very serious chronic medical condition that her husband had, that he had to take medication for. Very Uh, much in pain all the time, and the pain meds especially were what made him drowsy. He hardly slept at night, and so that's why he would fall asleep. She said, I keep telling him that we could just stay home and and watch the live stream, and, and he'd be more comfortable, and then the man interjected. He says, but I insist on going to church because I love being there to worship with everybody. 
And he even said, Pastor, I love your sermons. The parts that I stay awake for are really good. You know, I, I, I don't mean any offense. It's just the meds. Well, you can imagine how embarrassed I felt and guilty in that moment. And I began to think of Jesus' sobering admonition in Matthew chapter 7, where we land today in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, where he says in verse 1, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of dust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Don't give dogs what is sacred and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Some pretty major warnings here from Jesus. Do not judge, otherwise you will be judged. That Greek word that gets translated as judge here actually has quite a wide range of meanings. It could mean something very serious or something very light. Maybe it would be helpful to go to one other place in Scripture. We could go to several, but just to go to another place where it specifically talks about judging others to maybe get an idea of of what Jesus means here when he says, do not judge. Go with me to James chapter 4, verse 11. It'll also be on the screen. James 4, verse 11, it says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Romans 14 is also a great place to go to. We don't have time to go there today. But when you look at some of these other places in Scripture that specifically talk about warnings of judging others, it seems that what Jesus means here is when he says don't judge, he means don't slander, don't treat someone with contempt, don't condemn them. What we are really doing when we pass that kind of judgment is playing the role of God. And as James said, there is only one lawgiver and one judge, and it ain't us. Then he gives another warning. Why do you look at the sawdust, the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and pay no attention to the plank in your own? Ouch. (laughs) And then he says, you hypocrite. Ouch again. (laughs) I remember on that drive home from the couple's house after I visited them, just feeling so guilty and remembering all the times just that week alone where I did not listen well to those that were trying to tell me something important. I could do many examples alone just from Beamy telling me to do something and I wasn't really listening, you know, asking me to do a favor or pick something up and I would totally forget because I wasn't listening or with my kids or with my church family. What a hypocrite I was being. And then Jesus ends with this kind of bizarre instruction to not throw your pearls to pigs or what is sacred to dogs. And we'll get into unpacking that a little bit more later. 
I don't know about you, but this may be the hardest teaching for me yet in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm a little ashamed to admit why. Because judging others often feels really good. It does. It can make you feel a lot better about some of the things in your life that aren't going so good. I, I'm not really much for reality shows, but sometimes I will admit that when I'm channel surfing late at night and I stumble upon one, I can't help but linger there for a little bit. And it doesn't take long, just a few minutes uh, of watching what's, what's being there presented. And I'll say out loud, man, these people are crazy. They're so dysfunctional. And I feel so good about my life after watching it for a few minutes. You ever have that feeling? Judging can make us feel better about ourselves. Someone I've been reading a lot of since, as I told you last week, I've been going to counseling, is Dr. Brene Brown. Maybe some of you have read her research. It's really amazing. She's a social worker and researcher who has done years of study on important topics like shame and how living in vulnerability is so healthy for us. But something that she uh, discovered we do when we feel shame or insecure is uh, judge others. I have this quote from her. She says, research tells us that we judge people in areas where we're vulnerable to shame, especially picking on folks who are doing worse than we're doing. If I feel good about my parenting, I have no interest in judging other people's choices. If I feel good about my body, I don't go around making fun of other people's weight or appearance. We're hard on each other because we're using each other as a launching pad out of our own perceived shaming deficiency. Judging others can feel really good. Helps us to feel better about the areas in our life that we might be struggling it can even help us feel good about the choices that we have made. Dr. Brown goes on to say that this is particularly something we do as parents. She says one of the uh, reasons we judge each other so harshly in this world, in the world of parenting is because we perceive anyone else who's doing anything differently than what we're doing as criticizing our choices. We've got to justify the decisions we made because this family decided to do it differently, but we thought through it. We, we knew exactly what the right course of action was. And so we judge to make our own choices feel more right. It can be a real temptation to judge because it often makes us feel better about ourselves, our struggles, or our choices. But you know, the brief happiness that may come from condemning someone else does not lead to lasting joy or fulfillment, and I, I think it only leads to damaged relationships. True joy comes when we let God be God, right? Surrender to him. Love that we sang that song, I Surrender All Today. Good reminder. So, we are given this command, this warning to not judge, but it is tempting. It is hard because it feels good at times. So I want to suggest to you three strategies. No doubt we could find more, but I want to draw your attention just to three. Three strategies that I think Jesus at least gives us in this passage and the surrounding context to help us with our struggle in judging others. Strategy number one, remember your worth. 
Remember your worth. Now, we talked about this last week, and I'm not trying to be a lazy preacher and just reuse a point from last week's sermon. I feel compelled to mention it again, how valuable you are to God, because I think it is so foundational to us not struggling as much with judging others. How we understand our self-worth directly influences whether or not we are going to judge others. Dr. Brown alluded it alluded to it in her quote. Did you catch it? If I feel good about my parenting, I I have no interest in judging other parents. If I feel good about my body and who I am, I don't go around judging other people's weight or appearance. I don't think it is any accident at all that Jesus waits to tell us this warning about not judging at this moment after he has spent all that time we talked about last week. Look at the birds, how I provide for them. Aren't you more valuable than them? Consider how I clothe the grass with these beautiful flowers. This grass that is gone here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will I clothe you? Jesus is trying to help us grasp how much we are worth to him. And then he says, okay, now I can tell you the next step. Don't judge. In fact, in just a few chapters from now, Jesus will say, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs on your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. How crazy is it, and maybe a little weird, that God counts the numbers of hairs on our head? I mean, who takes inventory of follicles? We usually count other resources like the amount of money in the bank or the kind of car in the driveway or or the kind of house, the neighborhood that we live in. But hair, hair on the skin, no one, not even the guy with the expanding bald spot tries to do that. We style hair, we color hair, we cut hair. We don't count hair, but God does. The very hairs on your head, he knows how many are there. Why? Because he's crazy about you. Because you are his masterpiece. In March of 2014, a viola came on the market for the starting price of $45 million. You know, violas are often thought of as the unloved stepsisters of violins, rarely in the spotlight, played by fewer famous virtuosos with less music composed specifically for them, So what made this viola, which is called the McDonald viola, so valuable? Well, you can guess it. It was made by the most famous violin maker, right? Antonio Stradivari. And it's interesting because he did not make very many violas. He made about 600 violins, but only about 10 of his violas are known to have survived. And what ultimately gave that viola its worth was because it was this rare instrument created by the maker, Stradivari. What ultimately gives us our worth is the fact that we are the handiwork of the maker of the universe. Don't forget that. Because when you are very aware of how much you matter to God, it's really hard to want to worry about judging somebody else. That's the first strategy. Strategy. Second one. Just because you are God's handiwork doesn't mean you are not a work in progress. We have our own faults, don't we? 
And so Jesus says, strategy number two, which is the hardest one to swallow, deal with your plank first. And judging by the metaphor Jesus employs here, it seems that our faults are much, a much bigger issue than the faults we may find in our brother or sister. Ours is this giant beam, and theirs is this speck of sawdust. Do you get the picture that Jesus is trying to paint? You're probably using an illustration that was familiar to him growing up as a carpenter's kid, right? Or maybe what Jesus is getting at is that it's more important for you and I, for you and I to deal with our own sin struggles than to try to deal with somebody else's. And notice Jesus doesn't say, forget the speck of dust in your brother or sister's eye. He still wants us to help. But we have a fatal tendency, at least I do, to exaggerate the faults of others and minimize the gravity of our own. And Jesus says, I want you to take that perspective and completely turn it around. There's a beam in your eye and just a speck of dust in theirs. And I think one of the reasons it's so important, there's several reasons I'm sure we could cite, but one of the reasons I think it's so important to deal with our planks first before we help others is because it will help us to approach our brothers and sisters in the right spirit. I don't know about you, but it is hard to try to have a discussion about somebody else's speck in their eye. It is not a conversation I, I tried to, to go around finding opportunities to do, right? I don't know if you do, but it, it's hard. It's hard to do that graciously and lovingly and honestly. And I cannot think of a better way to prepare for that kind of difficult conversation than by having your own plank worked over by the grace of God. Because you come into that conversation with so much humility authentically knowing I'm a sinner saved by grace, just like you. You come into that situation with so much empathy, knowing how hard it is to surrender and work through something challenging with your God. I like the way Max Lucado puts it in his book, How Happiness Happens. He says this, Jesus' teaching did not preclude the place of constructive criticism. He simply urged us to follow the proper sequence. First, take the wood out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the dust out of your friend's eye. There is a time to speak up, but before you do, check your motives. The goal is to help, never to hurt. Look at yourself before you look down on others. Rather than put them in their place, put yourself in their place. That's well said. Strategy number three. I'm entitling this Replace judgment with discernment. Third strategy. The importance of discernment seems to be in the text, doesn't it? Jesus says not to forget the speck of dust, but then he also has that strange saying at the end where he says, don't give to dogs what is sacred or pearls to pigs. I think there's a principle here of discernment. But what exactly are we to discern? Is it to determine how worthy a person is for us to invest our evangelistic efforts in? That is kind of the traditional view of this passage. The traditional view suggests that we have certain wonderful treasures, truth or acts of service, the gospel message perhaps. But there are some who are not worthy of those treasures and we have to watch out for such people. 
Normally they are thought of as people who will not accept our treasure or who would use, not use it rightly. They are the pigs or dogs in question, and we are not to waste our good things on such people. Now I guess at some level, I think there's some truth to that principle. I can remember when I was a student in seminary and we were required as part of a class to go do uh, help with an evangelistic series in San Antonio, Texas. This was before the general conference meeting. And I was assigned with another group of students of about 15 of us to go work with Breath of Life. So Carlton Bird, if you, if you know Carlton Bird, was the speaker. And so we were his Bible workers. And pretty much from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., we were knocking on doors all over San Antonio to invite people, to, to invite them to, to have Bible studies. Um, I'm not really huge on door-to-door work like that. I know it can sometimes be a blessing. I personally believe that establishing relationships first is the best way to invite people to make a commitment for Jesus. But God still used that opportunity, and, and, uh, you know, I, I witnessed that firsthand, and I can remember there was one gentleman that we went to in this apartment complex, and he was so welcoming. He invited me and my partner in and was so interested in, in the program that we were doing. He wanted to have Bible studies, and, and we felt really good as we left his house. And then when we got to the, the meeting, he was there sitting in the front row, and while the speaker would speak, he would interrupt him and try to counter everything that he was saying. He was a kind of an atheist uh, when, when you really talk to him. And he wanted to just disprove everything, discredit everything. And so eventually we had to invite him to leave. So I can understand maybe at some level that that we've got to be discerning maybe in that way. But I think we should be very, very careful about this kind of principle. I actually feel a little uneasy trying to discern who might be worthy to receive the gospel and who might not be. I don't know about you. In fact, I have another story from that same Uh, experience of of going to doors and and, and apartments uh, day in, day out on that same uh, uh, evangelistic series. There was one apartment complex. It was the biggest one that we had to work on. Hundreds of rooms there. And from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., we didn't even finish it. Uh, We had maybe like 50 doors left, but we were going to go home for the night. I didn't get one interest that entire time And I was telling uh, my partner, I don't want to come back here. This is not a place that is fruitful. Let's just go somewhere else. And so we did. But then the first night of the meeting, uh, I found in one of the interest cards that there was a family from that apartment complex that I thought was pointless to work at. This lady came there with her kids, and at the end of the meetings, ended up getting baptized. I don't remember talking to her. All I remember was getting so many doors slammed in my face as I was going from one to the next. So I think we should be very careful about trying to discern who is and who is not worthy to receive ministry or the gospel message. It's hard to imagine anything more opposed to the spirit of Christ, right? Who in this very Sermon on the Mount, just moments before, instructed us to love our enemies and do good to them. I want to read to you a few paragraphs from Dallas Willard's commentary on this verse, which I think helps us understand maybe the kind of discernment Jesus is getting at here. It's kind of long, but I think it's worth the read. 
He said, Jesus is not suggesting that certain classes of people are to be viewed as pigs or dogs, nor is he saying that we should not give good things and do good deeds to people who might reject or misuse them. In fact, his teaching is precisely the opposite. We are to be like the Father in the heavens who is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. The problem with pearls for pigs is not that pigs are not worthy. It is not worthiness that is in question here at all, but helpfulness. Pigs cannot digest pearls, cannot nourish themselves upon them. Likewise, for a dog with a Bible, the dog cannot eat it. The reason these animals will finally turn and rend you uh, when you one day step up to them with another load of Bibles or pearls is that you at least are edible. Anyone who has ever had serious responsibilities for caring uh, for animals will understand immediately what Jesus is saying. When your dog is really, really hungry, they do not behave very well. I understand that now, so we have a puppy. And what a picture this is of our efforts to correct and control others by pouring our good things. Did I skip a spot? No, I didn't. Okay. By pouring our good things, often truly precious things upon them. Things that they nevertheless simply cannot ingest and use to nourish themselves. Often we do not listen to them. We know without listening. That phrase really challenged me this week. I am guilty of that. Jesus saw it going on around him all the time as we do today, and the outcome is usually exactly the same with the pig and the dog. Our good intentions make little difference. The needy person will finally become angry and attack us. The point is not to waste, is not the waste of the pearl, but that the person given the pearl is not helped. I think what we are to discern is how best to help others. Meet them where they're at. So family, I just want to remind you, there is only one lawgiver and one judge, and it is not you or I. So please, let's stop judging others and let God be God. And if you are like me and you struggle with doing that, spend some time remembering what you're worth, dealing with your plank first and seeking to discern how you can be as helpful as possible to others. Amen. Let's pray. What a Savior you are, God. Thank you for the invitation to come to the altar. May we come there today with with our God complexes and just surrender all to you and say, you are the judge, you are God, not us. And Lord, thank you for reminding us that you bought us with your precious blood. We are so valuable to you. May we not forget that we were worth the highest price in the universe. But Lord, we are also not perfect. We are sinners in need of grace, and we thank you for allowing us to come to the altar with our planks and our beams that are making us clunk and limp over to the altar. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, which helps us with that. And Lord, we pray that by the power of your grace, you would would help us to discern how we can be best of help to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.